As a teen, it was me, Liz Nolan, and Maria La Callas against the world. I'd never even heard of the great Greek soprano. Warbling at the local fesh had been the extent of my involvement with the vocal arts when I was presented with a double LP of Callas arias. First record, first track. Catalani's Ebene Androlontana from Act One of La Valle. And my first thought was, oh God, that's not pretty. That's not nice or safe. It can't be corralled into tasteful background listening. Instead, here's this woman who pulls at the very heart of me with this thrilling metallic sound. This was dangerous. I somehow knew the passion and the strength in everything she sang, her Olympian command of range and ornamentation. You weren't charmed. You were overwhelmed by Callas. I'd sit in a daze, lip-syncing to her arias, charting the trajectory of her high-wire cadenzas. Huddled in my room, a pudgy, awkward schoolgirl, enthralled to this terrible beauty. like to be a disappointment and to be unloved and to be unwanted and she carried that really throughout her whole life you know it's a complex with her and that stems back to her birth. Lindsay Spence is author of the acclaimed new biography Casta Diva the hidden life of Maria Callas. Her mother and father had lost their son in 1922 and her mother was a very superstitious woman she believed in the occult and she had visited astrologers and played the Ouija board and really believed that the the universe as such would send her another son to replace the one that had died and when Callus was born she was a, a very very great disappointment to her parents they couldn't even bring themselves to look at her and neither of them could remember the exact day she was born or agree on a name for her as such and that, I think she really carried that because her mother says, well, I already have a daughter, Jackie. I don't need another one. And they thought Callis was ugly. She was very dark looking compared to her, her older sister, who was quite fair. And they really just thought she was ugly and pointless. And they really didn't see the need of having her. And it was only whenever one day when she was about, I guess, about nine, she started singing, perhaps younger. She was playing the piano and singing La Paloma that her mother thought, well, you're, you're quite useful in a way because it was the era of Shirley Temple and all of the great child stars and she thought she could mould Callis into being a child star and in that sense just earning money for the family. Her mother gave her two choices, either sing for your supper or sell yourself to the enemy soldiers and she was so appalled that a mother could pit their child in that predicament and when she went out to sing she would bring home money and food the mother assumed that she had got it through other means and Callis never really forgave her for that but yes Callis always said she never forgot what it was like to be hungry to feel humiliated to have to find food out of bins and she carried that with her always in fact Giuseppe Di Stefano remembers being in her kitchen in Paris in this very opulent apartment and Callis was having an absolute panic attack over all of the food that would go to waste so she recruited her two servants and Di Stefano and they sat and they really ate the last of the bread and the fruit because she couldn't bring herself to throw it in the bin and she carried that with her always that sense of having to survive and just really being on your own in the world and having to to make it on your own
Bart Callas became a pupil of Elvira de Hidalgo, a Spanish soprano and master in the ancient technique of bel canto, or beautiful singing, which was based on lyrical lines and spectacular coloratura, or ornamental techniques. De Hidalgo instructed Callas in this exacting art, and the girl learned to conjoin the rich timbre of her natural dramatic soprano with an extended high register, which was capable of spectacular trills and runs of notes. After the war, Callas returned to America, determined on a career in opera. And after initial disappointments in New York and Chicago, she was offered a role at the Verona Opera Festival in Italy. Taking a chance, Callas sailed the Atlantic for Verona, where she'd meet two men who'd each play a key role in her life. Tullio Serafin, the great maestro and advocate for the forgotten school of bel canto opera, and Giovanni Battista Meneghini, a much older businessman who swiftly became Maria's lover, her manager and her husband. Under the guidance of Serafin, Callas was soon hailed as a sensation performing dramatic soprano roles such as Puccini's Turandot or Ponchielli's La Gioconda. And, again urged by Serafin, Callas pulled off an unprecedented feat, taking on the virtuosic role of Elvira in the bel canto Bellini opera I Puritani just a very few days after a run of performances as Wagner's Brunhilde in Die Walküre. So many roles, so many challenges, and always Callas demanded perfection of herself. Today, opera star Tara Erocht pursues a career path in the highest echelons of her industry. What does Tara make of this approach of Callas to sing such a breadth of roles? The thing is, when she worked in, in the era, let's say, that she worked, and also in the industry that she was working in then, it's completely different to what we're working in now. However, she worked as a 21st century singer in the industry she worked in. She sang much more than most other people. And she sang as varied repertoire as possible because she sang things she wanted to play. She wasn't so worried about the voice. And to be honest, I have to say I'm the exact same. I sing what I want to play. So in Così Fan Tutte, in Le Nozze di Figaro, Clemenza di Tito, I sing at least three roles. And the reason that has happened is because I started with one and when I'd be singing that, I'd think, oh my God, he's so interesting or oh, she's so interesting or oh, I want to get my hands on that. And that's how it happened. And I'm lucky that I have a team that say, okay, well, I, we, th we believe you're vocally ready for X and Y, let's say in two years or three years. It's never that I decide today I'm going to sing Wagner on Friday. For Miss Callis, it was different because whatever she said, it happened. It happened then there and then and the planning changed for her, her. so if she said mm, even let's say with the Azolda I'm sure they didn't say let's try that in six years let's try that even in three years I'm sure they said we'll, we'll do it in six months we'll cancel something else and we'll put it on for you because you want to do it and the people will come which at the end of the day makes box office of course in my opinion it's ill-advised why is that because when you prepare a role especially like Isolde and you've kind of thickened up the voice a little bit. The reason for doing that is because the orchestra is so gigantic. Now, Wagner was a genius, as he wrote, and he wrote a huge amount that would soar above and through the orchestra. But then, when he wrote really hardcore emotional scenes, it's always right in the middle of the instrument and in a very thick, heavy-stringed, big, you know, French horn, big brass section. So you had to have the ability to do that and produce that, which she obviously could... 
clever enough, no matter what she sang, every show was cast around her. So when she sang, they cast around her to suit her colour, her weight in voice. You know, so she was protected in that sense also, which would have made it a much harder job for the conductor because it would be up to him to keep the orchestra down all the time to suit that cast. But you can be guaranteed that if she sang that on, I don't know, on a Monday and then came back to sing the Bellini on a Saturday, of course the voice was a different colour. And it's not that easy to make the voice schlank again. When I say schlank, I mean slim and bright. She obviously had the ability to do that. But again, the Bellini would have been cast around her. So you could decide then, well, you know what, we're going to take a slightly heavier tenor than we usually would. And we're going to, you know, mellow up the orchestra a little bit to make sure that the support is there for this slightly bigger instrument at the time. Nobody planned a trajectory for her. They planned work all of the time. Now, I'm sure somebody like her would wake up on a Monday and say, oh, I want to sing Medea. But she's only been singing Mozart all weekend. And they'll say, OK, we'll fix that for you. But for her, it was instantaneous. It wasn't. We'll do that in four years. And I think that's the terrible pity about the trajectory building for her, that nobody really did it. And she got everything she asked for. You cannot give a singer everything they ask for. <laughs> it's very important. Again, when you need a team that can also say to you, no, either outright no or no, not yet. But it's really, really, really important that you have that. And sadly, she didn't. For any singer to take on roles at such opposite extremes of vocal technique as Bellini and Wagner is a major feat. That fateful summer of 1949, Callas carried off this double whammy nearly back to back. What would the implications of this be for the physical instrument, the human voice itself? Otolaryngologist Dr. Paul Quack. I think that she was so young. And we tend to think these days, perhaps all days, that Wagner voices take longer to mature for a couple of reasons. It requires a kind of coordination of breath. It requires an immensity of kind of breath support and a vocalism that is on something of a different kind of scale than some Italianate repertoire, particularly like Bellini. And, and so the big, the great Wagner roles for women, the Brunhildes, the Isoldes, typically take quite a while to mature. And so the fact that she sang perhaps arguably the pinnacle, Brunhilde at age 26 alone, is astonishing. It's, it's phenomenal. And I suppose the analogy might be something like if you if one considers Brunhilde and Wagner as a kind of rugby an all contact requires immense sort of body and strength that that is a Wagner I suppose and then to turn around in a couple days to do Elvira which you know quintessential bel canto role would be perhaps more like football. In endurance, stamina, and speaking more in vocal terms than line and sort of beauty of tone. Smaller in scale, perhaps, at least from the vocal mechanism standpoint. So to, sh to shift gears like that 
is an extraordinary functional feat. I suppose the upside of doing that at 26 <laughs> is that the, the tissue, you know, there's a kind of recovery and a kind of durability and pliability that makes recovery much easier. You know, any of us who does any exercise can recognize that the, th the things that you can do in your 20s, you can't do quite so easily in your 40s. And so on the one hand, one is astonished at the fact that she did this at age 26. But on the other hand, it is perhaps because she was 26 that she was able to do it. As well as art, there was love in her life at this time in the person of Battista, or Tita, Meneghini, who quickly positioned himself as Maria's manager and within three months had married her. Lindsay Spence on Meneghini. Well, with Meneghini, he, was, he became her manager and he didn't want to marry her at first because in Italy, divorce was illegal and he thought, well, if she doesn't become a great success, I'm stuck with her. And of course, by 1949, she was making a name for herself in the opera world and she says, if you don't marry me, I will go back to America. And he knew that she was a very valuable commodity and he agreed to it. And he had a, a certain type of woman that he liked. There was a, a joke in Verona at the time that he liked his women to be as big as the pyramids. And Callis, although she was quite quite well built at the time, she really transformed herself to be his ideal woman. She became quite heavy and dressed quite older than her years to please him. And then when she thought, well, I can retire, I've made enough money, we can buy a home and I can retire and have a child. He says, well, that'll take a year out of your career. And their marriage became very platonic by 1951. And I think at that point, she just decided to live for herself. She says her health was suffering from being overweight and her art was suffering because she couldn't move as freely. And of course, at home, she had a husband who didn't really see her as his wife, but as his, you know, his commodity in a way. And I, I think that is why she, she transformed into the person she always wanted to be. And I think, of course, when a woman turns 30, as Callis did, I think they start to reevaluate things and they do sort of step into to being their own person and looking for their own inner strength. And that's what she did. But, of course, she did it in a very extreme way, the way she did everything. She decided she wasn't losing weight fast enough. And if you see her in Medea in 1953, I mean, she's stunning, isn't she? She's, she's not overly thin, but she's not big. And she's, she's absolutely beautiful, whatever size she, she was, but she decided to try a very advanced and dangerous treatment where she would inject iodine into her thyroid gland, and that gives you an overactive thyroid. And of course, she was losing weight so fast to a point where it got quite dangerous at one point, and the tabloids loved it. And I think today they love a, a story like that, don't they, of transformation? And when she was very, very thin and dressing like a model and portraying herself in a certain way, that's when I believe she really became La Callis, the celebrity, as opposed to Callis, the artist. with Vien Diletto e Incella Luna, part of Elvira's mad scene from Act Two of Bellini's Ipuritani, Maria Callas in a 1953 recording. It was the following year that Callas made her uncompromising decision. 
not just to lose weight, but to resemble Audrey Hepburn in the movie Roman Holiday. And within a short space of time, she lost 30 kilos, invested in a couture wardrobe, and suddenly Callas was one of the most glamorous women on the planet, adored by a far wider public than ever before. Though at home, she was used as a commodity by her husband, while for opera houses, Callas was a byword for box office success, regardless of her physical or mental condition. Let's explore this world of bel canto singing and opera, a genre which Callas helped to revive on the 20th century stage. In what way did her performances of bel canto bring modern relevance to this somewhat archaic practice of opera? Diego Fasciati is executive director of Irish National Opera. So bel canto, I mean, personally, I love bel canto operas. I am fascinated by the structures of, of, of the operas and how they, they work on a dramatic level and an emotional level. Maria Callas was a big driver in, in reviving the Belcanto repertoire in mid-20th century Europe and North America. And I think the reason is that when she sang Belcanto, she didn't just sing the pretty coloratura notes as pretty coloratura notes. She infused them with meaning so that it was no longer just Lucia's mad scene where you see how high a soprano can sing. It, she combined the drama with the music, which I think is what the composers were doing in the first place. But she was able to f- fully realize it. And I think people were surprised at how good bel canto can be because they might have been used to just pretty singing. But what Maria Callas did was, no, this can be very dramatic and I'm going to show you how it's done. And I think that led to a, to a revival of Belcanto operas, some of which became very famous, like Lucia de Lammermoor, The Elixir of Love, Norma, which was, of course, Callas' big role. And now I think there, there, there is a, still a movement in, in rediscovering other Belcanto operas that perhaps haven't been done yet. And while Belcanto generally defined as you know beautiful singing it isn't just about the way of singing, it is also the structure of the opera, how the dramaturgy works musically, which I find fascinating, and which gives singers a lot of, not a lot of, but let's say, if you do a Puccini, you sing it the way it's written. If you do a Wagner, you sing the way it's written. If you do a bel canto opera, there is the chance of doing the cadenza, there is the chance of doing the repeat in a slightly different way, put in your own ornamentations. And those ornamentations then define the character or how one person, how one artist is interpreting a character, which makes the whole thing really exciting. A modern-day bel canto star, Tara Arocht regularly stars in operas by Rossini, Donizetti, Bellini and other masters of the age. What is it like to sing bel canto? It's very interesting because what is bel canto? Realistically, it's beautiful singing. So when those composers wrote, they were writing for singers that were masters of their own instruments. They were able to play with the instrument. It was never the same. What those singers produced of an evening was never to be repeated. And with a huge amount of bel canto repertoire, as the singer, you're allowed to put in your own cadenzas and things that suit your instrument, which mean sometimes it is difficult to replicate it because when you're at the stage where you're able to sing that repertoire, it's a very exciting stage. And again, you've found the ability to move with the voice how it is on that particular day. There's no question that it comes in and out of fashion, the repertoire in general. 
It's not particularly in fashion at the moment. There are a few things for very high sopranos, so not, not my things, but things like Sonambula and Lucia that are, you know, turned out most seasons. But a huge amount of the Rossini, Bellini, even Donizetti, it's not on the market at the moment. I don't know whether that's because of the theatres, whether that's the public. I can't answer that question because I'm not really involved in the planning of it. Callas says Rosina, heroine of Rossini's comic opera The Barber of Seville, that Una Voce Poco Fa, a 1958 recording. As seminal to the Callas legacy is the issue of her voice itself, a vocaccia, as her maestro Tullio Serafin used to call it, a great ugly voice. During her life, Callas fans were often pitted against those of her rival, soprano Renata Tebaldi, who possessed a beautifully creamy lyrical instrument. Though, in terms of drama, Tebaldi couldn't begin to match the onstage intensity and excitement that Callas brought to the table. Critics were quick to point out the defects in Callas's voice, which increased even during the years of her ascendancy. A shrillness on top, a kind of bottled or hooded sound around the notes between vocal registers. Perfect imperfections? When we listen to Callas, the sound is so visceral and distinctive. Are we listening to a different kind of beauty? And what even constitutes a beautiful voice? I put the question to Dr. Paul Quack. Is it possible to look at a larynx, this voice box which encases vocal folds, which vibrate to produce sound? Is it possible to tell from sight whether it houses a good voice? I like to think about what makes a person's voice unique and distinctive. And that is the whole mechanism. And and I love this question about can you identify a voice based on looking at vocal folds, which you really cannot. I spend all day looking at 20, 30 sets of vocal folds. And if you just put them up on the screen and turn off the sound, you, you really can't tell whose or whose. I mean, certainly some people have lesions, some people have distinctive features, but you cannot, for example, look and say, those are a soprano's vocal folds, those are a tenor's vocal folds. What makes each voice individual and gives it character and makes it unique is the shape of the face and the shape of the throat. And I believe the texture of the muscle and the mucous membrane that creates the shape and the sound of the voice. And that's, that's really what makes voices unique. It's the anatomy of the resonating chambers, the sinuses, the, the forehead, the mid-face. So that's what's interesting. That, that is why you can take five different sopranos, all of whom might sing a specific role, five mimis, for example, and they all sound different because they all are built differently, not primarily at the level of the vocal folds, but about everything around them. 
It's interesting to discuss what makes a beautiful voice. I mean, that's difficult to define because different people have different tastes. I mean, yes, we can talk about is the voice melodious, is it pleasing to the ear? I mean, for, for me, when we talk about opera singers in particular, the voices that I, li I like are those that convey the character, convey the emotion. Even if you don't know what they're singing, that you know that they're conveying anger or love or worry. And, and I think that's what came through so well in Callas's voice. You, you know exactly what she's trying to communicate. But in addition, I mean, obviously nowadays we have Callas's recordings and we have a lot of videos of Callas performing. But I think for an opera singer, for me, it's impossible to separate the voice from the presence on stage. I think, in fact, it was Maria Callas who said, you know, you, you need to give the public, even before you start singing, the public has to know what you are feeling. You know, and if you watch her videos, that's exactly what she does. In essence, you, I think you cannot separate the voice from the performer. And the, the best opera singers are those that have the whole package. And, and when they're on stage, you, you can't help but watch them and, and, and kind of be drawn in by them. We've all heard of Callas, like we've all heard of Pavarotti. And the big difference between those two very huge and hopefully long, long, long lasting legacies is that everyone said you have to hear Pavarotti. Yet with Callas, everybody said, I'm so sad I didn't get to see her. And I think without question, she was a stage animal which is what we all aspire to be and want to be. It does not matter what you sound like on a recording because when you're gone, it's gone, in, in, in my opinion. When the evening is over in the theatre, that performance is gone. What I find so incredibly interesting is whether people find the voice beautiful or not, what still attracts us to her recordings are the colours that she used. Are they maybe what the composer wrote? Not, not very often. But they are what she thought of that character. And I think there's still a lot to be learned from that is it perfect far from can I name a perfect singer no I can't alive or dead I can't but what she did for the industry first of all was gigantic she brought it alive what she still continues to do is make us all brave enough to try and hear something else it's not that we're looking for perfection we're looking for something real and she gives that time and time again no matter what you listen to there's something that you didn't hear a time before I am desperately sad that I never got to experience her live because I'd say it must have been like an out-of-body experience. From Umberto Giordano's opera Andrea Chenier, the Act Three aria La Mamma Morta, a 1954 recording with Maria Callas. As the 1950s drew to a close, so did the great years of the Callas career. Since childhood, she'd endured a punishing schedule, with her entire life given over entirely to the pursuit of her art, the only means she had found of self-validation and of receiving love. Marriage to Menighini had only exacerbated this dynamic as he sought to maximise on his investment. La Divina, Callas the opera star. 
With little real appreciation or knowledge of opera or management, Menegini signed Callas up for an unrelenting schedule of productions, which took in a vast range of characters. Chief among these was Callas's signature role, Norma, that of the tragic druid priestess in Bellini's Bel Canto Opera, and famously one of the most difficult female roles in all operatic repertoire. Under this physical and mental strain, Callas began to buckle, and increasingly there were highly publicised last-minute cancellations or ill-advised performances, despite her being too unwell or stressed to go on stage. An infamous occasion took place on New Year's evening 1958, a Rome performance of Norma in front of Italian dignitaries. Lindsay Spence tells the story. Well, leading up to the Rome performance of Norma for the Italian president, Callas was really, really overworked. If you think what she was doing in 1957, months leading up to it, she was doing the Athens Festival. She wasn't well. She was sort of in the throes of a nervous breakdown. She was overly thin. She was exhausted. Her doctor wanted to put her in hospital for six weeks and she couldn't because Meningini had committed to all of these contracts. She cancelled the San Francisco opera, but she couldn't be open and say, you know, I've got mental health issues, I'm exhausted, I'm this, I'm that. She says, well, you know, I've got the flu. And they thought that was quite a frivolous reason. So, of course, when you get to the new year of 1958 and she's in Rome, she's not well. And she was in good voice in the rehearsal and in a televised performance. It was pre-recorded. But on the night itself, she was struggling. She was very, very tired. Her throat was sore. Um, and she just wasn't in good health. And Meningini says, well, why don't you faint in front of everybody and they will have sympathy for you? But she felt that wasn't genuine. She says, I'll go on and I'll, I'll try my best because she was told we don't have a stand in. Nobody can double callous. So she really put herself in a vulnerable position. And I can't imagine what it must have been like to know that you have no control over what your body wants to do versus standing in front of an, an opera house full of people and all eyes on you and they're expecting you to deliver. And of course she couldn't. So... After the first act, she decided to leave under her doctor's advice. But Meningini had, he had a way with the press that he, he was manipulating things and leaking stories. And it was just seen that Callus was at a nightclub the night before. She was overly tired. She was hungover as such and didn't want to perform. And of course, she was oblivious to that. So when she got to her hotel, the public were waiting outside her, her hotel, screaming, shouting death threats, telling her to go back to Milan. And it really, it hindered her career because the Italian government tried to get her banned from state-run opera houses and, you know, it was heard at parliament level and the press had a field day with her. And at that point, she just thought, well, nobody's going to believe me. There's no point telling them my personal business. And she was really, really defeated. And I think in terms of her career, she was at a very, very low point. In fact, she did confide to a friend that it was one of the first times that she really felt suicidal. Not that she would have done anything as such, but she she just felt so low and so misunderstood that she didn't see a reason for continuing. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but there is always huge pressure when you're sick to perform. And it is incredibly, incredibly difficult to make that decision because your whole job is to give away what you have to the public. And if you feel like you don't have it, you have nothing to give. You know, you can physically stand up, but if the cords are swollen, they're too fat to come together to make any noise. And if they're swollen, the air also can't come through them freely. So there is no noise. For her in that situation, it just shows you the pressure that was on her and the amount of people that 
pushed her around. Like, I mean, I can honestly say in this day and age, if you said, I'm not well, but I'll try, they'll come out, they'll make an announcement to the public. And if you are lucky enough to be able to make it as far as the interval, the theatre will be so grateful. There would be nothing like that because honestly, they're very aware of the kind of humanity in the voice and, and, and everything. And I think, I honestly think the public would also respond quite well that you would even try on their behalf. In that sense, the industry has absolutely cleaned itself up and there is a huge amount of pride in how a theatre would care for its artists. And also just in a kind of human sense, there's a much more human kind of understanding, let's say. That did not exist when she worked. You are only as good as your last performance to the public, of course. But for her, even in the theatre, they did not take care. Imagine, imagine that they would say, okay, well, you tried one act of something. Not about the big arias in the first act. She did the, the, the big business, what they actually all came to hear. And the fact that they would say, well, you're not going to sing in the country then. It was horrific. And to have no human value on her life, except for her ability to sing, it's absolutely horrific. Of course, all of that had a toll on her physically, mentally, vocally. There's no other way to answer that, only to say it was horrific what they allowed to happen to her. While for us, well, for me anyway, it's extraordinary to imagine such outrage that Callas had to endure public and even political censure in the wake of such an impossible situation. It's worth bearing in mind that opera traditions differ from country to country. For years, Callas reigned as queen of La Scala, the great opera house of Milan. Yet there too, her performances were subject to catcalls and interruption from clacks, professional groups hired to cheer or deride performers, and also from the bona fide punters themselves. 
While it's traumatic for the singer, Diego Facerti points out that it's also a part of Italian opera culture. At La Scala, if people don't like a singer or the way he or she is performing a particular aria, they will let them know and they will boo, which is harsh and, and may seem even harsher to us here in Ireland or if you're in the UK, because that doesn't happen here. However, I would say that also means that if you get great ovations and applause, that it's really, really meant, you know. I remember Renee Fleming made her debut on La Scala in the 90s and she was booed. And it, I think it was a contemporary piece. And I just, I think you, you need to prepare people, singers, for your particular culture. I think that's probably a, a job for the opera managers and impresarios that they need to do. For example, in Ireland, you know, when you go to a panto, it's a tradition to boo the bad guy. So sometimes in opera, the bad guy also gets booed. And so we have to explain to the poor Italian baritone that it's not because they didn't like his performance, but that it's tradition going back to panto. You know, so it's a whole cultural context that you have to give to people. Sempre Libera, from Act One of Verdi's La Traviata, a role that Maria Callas would make her own. Now, the year which followed her Rome debacle was filled with triumphs and disputes, a regular pattern in the life of Callas, as her voice continued to suffer under the strain. And it was in January 1959 that she fell in love with the last key figure in her life, millionaire shipping tycoon and fellow Greek Aristotle Onassis. Lindsay Spence. I think Onassis really came into Callas's life when she was at her lowest ebb. He met her in 1957 when things were starting to really go wrong in her career. You know, public perception was, was turning against her. She wasn't happy with Meningini. She wanted something new, but she was tied into all of these engagements. And they met at the Venice Film Festival and he danced with her. And she said something like, oh, Mr. Onassis, do you not feel self-conscious dancing beside me because I'm so tall? And he says, no. Madame Callas, when I'm with you, I feel 10 feet tall. And she was quite flattered by that. And they kept meeting in social settings. And he was always very attentive and very nice. And I guess the kids today will call it love bombing. But of course, back then, Callas was just amazed that somebody was being so kind to her. And then by 1959, she accepted his invitation to go on the Christina, his, his luxury yacht. She really fell in love with him. People think she left Meningini for Onassis. That's not true. Before the cruise, she had asked Meningini for her freedom, and he said no. So, you know, she wasn't, I guess, spiritually with him or with him in any way when she met Onassis. Well, in my opinion, I, she really thought that Onassis could save her and just give her the life she always wanted. She wanted to be a traditional wife, of course, to a billionaire <laughs> and have children and just live that way and and Onassis made all of these wonderful promises to her yes we can do this we can do that but she couldn't get a divorce from Meningini because of the Italian law so she wanted to get an American divorce and Meningini said no you, I will sign the papers so long as you give me 50% of your recording royalties but she was financially ruined at that point and she couldn't afford to do that and she was expecting Onassis's child and Meningini knew and under Italian law the husband is the child's father regardless of who the real father is so she knew Meningini would also have a hand over her child and she lost the child in early 1960 
And things really started to change because Onassis didn't want the child. He didn't want to get married to her. He had a mistress in Athens. And Callus, upon reflection, says, oh, look at us. We were so beautiful back then, but our lives, our lives were hell. This would never be a relationship of equals. While Callas longed for love and commitment, Onassis brought a transactional approach to the relationship. Lindsay Spence. It was always just a fight on her behalf to get him to treat her right. And yeah, like you said, she kept going back to him. But I think it was pride as well because she had left her husband in such a spectacular way, threw her career away and went off with a married man as such. I think she felt like she had to see it through. But as the years went on, um, she would always say, are you going to marry me? And at one point he said in front of friends, Maria, I can't do that. This is a pay-as-you-go situation, which humiliated her. But there was just something there. I think it was just his narcissism and her devotion to him and such a toxic dynamic that kept kept pulling her back. 1968, she finally walked out on him when she discovered his affair with Jacqueline Kennedy. She says, you'll never see me again. And I guess in a way he didn't. So she had that presence of mind to leave and walk out with her dignity, somewhat preserved. But after he, after Onassis married Jacqueline Kennedy, um, he started to go back over to Maria's apartment. He, he bought the apartment and she resisted him. But she gave in and they sort of restored their relationship for a few days. And then she opened the newspapers and saw that he was back with his wife and she overdosed and ended up in the American hospital in Paris. And that was a turning point for her. She just decided she couldn't take the humiliation anymore. And she started to get back into her art and live for herself. But she always had that friendship and that bond with Onassis. I don't think anybody else would have been so forgiving, but she felt like their Greekness tied them together and they had so much in common. And having shared nine years together and quite turbulent years, she felt like they would always have that tie together. And I think he exploited that for all it was worth, really. And just as the woman suffered, so did the artist. Diego Facciati. My view of, of Callas' career, is, you know, she essentially had a short career, but very intense. We will never know what would have happened if she had never met Onassis. But it seems to me that once her relationship with Onassis started, she started neglecting her career. There was a period of time when she no longer sang live. And an opera singer is an athlete. You can't stop training. You won't have the muscles to be able to do what you need to do. So I think, unfortunately, her career declined in part because of her personal circumstances, in part because of her relationship with Onassis, in part of her disappointment that he then married someone else. But we don't know. Who knows? You know, it's difficult to predict the longevity of a career. It's difficult to, to predict how long an opera singer will be able to have a career. It depends on a number of factors. Now, several opera singers have very long careers. You know, Placido Domingo is 82. Mirella Freni sang for years and years. Waltraud Meyer, who just retired this year, she's in her 60s, I believe. So it's hard to say. You know, it's a bit like if there is a 16-year-old tennis player who is brilliant, you know, it's difficult to say how many Grand Slams will they win in the next 20 years. It depends. Sometimes they play for five years and then have to retire. Sometimes they play for 20 years and do really well. Every voice changes across time and age. So that, that may seem like an obvious thing to say, but I think those of us who love truly great voices, you, you we're just sort of obsessed with keeping them 
as they are the way we know them at their most sort of beautiful. Again, I use that term with some trepidation. You know, you, you want to keep the voice just the way it is, but it cannot be just simply with ordinary use on a performing stage, the vocal folds collide, they become swollen. There are wound healing reactions that take place. Same with the muscle around them. It, it, it ages and it changes. And so, it, you know, one has to contextualize Collis's so-called decline in that setting. Following her years with Onassis, Maria Callas was a lost soul. There were several abortive attempts to reinvent herself. Over the years, she'd been offered roles in several movies by directors enthralled at her dramatic gifts. And in 1969, she took part in a non-operatic film of Medea, based on the Euripides play, a modest critical success. There was a series of masterclasses at New York's Juilliard School of Music, later fictionalised in the Terence McNally play Masterclass. And in 1973, Callas was persuaded to go on a concert tour by her fellow former opera colleague Giuseppe Di Stefano, a poignant endeavour as they'd each all but lost their former vocal glory. And there was a final appeal by Onassis for Maria to take him back. She refused and the following year he died. Maria Callas herself died two years after that, in 1977, a recluse at her Paris apartment, cut off from the world she'd once enthralled. But decades on, the legacy of La Divina lives on. What does it mean to our panel of experts? What has the art and life of Callas left us? Lindsay Spence. I think it's important to remember that, you know, she was a pioneer in what she did. She was the highest paid opera singer in an era when women weren't really getting paid all that, you know, that much compared to the male performers. She revived bel canto. She made opera fun and exciting and she put it on the map. And today she's the point of reference for anything to do with opera, which is quite sad for other opera singers who were just as hardworking. But Callis is really the ultimate, isn't she? People strive to be like her and she worked hard and she had her own identity. And I think... Although it's important to remember the achievements of Callas the artist and her voice, I think it's also important to remember Maria the woman and what she went through to bring Callas to life. I don't think there's much point in sort of sweeping Maria under the rug because it doesn't fit the public's narrative. I think it's very, very important to remember that Callas was a human, human being and at the end of the day, she was just Maria. She was an ordinary woman with an extraordinary talent. I think... She 
more than many, helped us keep at the center of our vision the importance of the communication first and the kind of glory of the sound a very close second. That is different from saying that she had any faults technically. She, she was a marvelous technical singer. But I think what's so fantastic about the debate about whether her voice was beautiful is exactly that. It, it helps us think and feel as people who love opera, who love singing, about what constitutes a great voice, a great singer, and great communication. I think that is her great legacy to all of us. It's, it's a gift. And so we continue to listen to her, to study her, and she, and she lives on for that reason in many different ways. I think Kalas is one of the great artists of the 20th century, of all artists. It's unfortunate that her private circumstances led to an early death, really. It's unfortunate that celebrity culture, even back then, took precedence over her artistry, in a way, that people were more interested in what she was wearing and who she was going to the opera with and who Arnassus had as a guest on his boats, then what is Callas doing in the theater, you know, and, and how is she performing? I think she popularized opera in a way because she became known outside opera circles, very well known. She has made an impact on popular culture. She's known, and you know, a bit like Pavarotti did. There are a number of opera singers that you and I might be familiar with because of our jobs, but who would not be household names? You know, there might be big stars in the opera world. So Maria Callas was able to transcend that to the point where, even though most of us alive today, or certainly most of us under 40 would never have seen her life, she is still a name. People are still talking about her. So there was something fascinating about her artistry and life that, that still fascinates people today. So overall, I think she was... Amazing, amazing to have had such a such an artist interpret opera and, and give us the gift of music. And for the modern day diva, what is it to follow in the steps of Maria Callas? Tara Arocht recalls an occasion when she performed at the Opera Garnier of Paris, a house which formerly bore witness to the genius of Callas. After those two weeks, we moved from the rehearsal room to the Palais Garnier, where the show was going to happen. And we walked in... And I'd never been in the Garnier before. Obviously knew of the building. It's so famous. And we're walking in and I can feel this kind of, don't want to call it oppressive presence, but something really sat heavy on me. And I thought, oh my God, am I actually going to start getting nervous? Because it wouldn't be my way. And we go up um, and into the dressing rooms. And then somebody came in and said, this room was renovated the way Callis wanted it. And then I thought, oh, Holy mother of God. Not only was I in her dressing room, she had sung this role in this theatre. And as a mezzo at the time, I was like, oh, and here I am singing French for the French in a soprano role <laughs> in her dressing room. I was so unwell, no joke, really unwell for about 90 minutes. And I couldn't, oh, my knees and my ankles, just nothing was ho holding me well. And, well, you know, we went out on stage. 
in quite a modern production, I have to say. But even still, I couldn't get past the fact that she had been there. She had stood on that stage. I'm looking up at the ceiling thing and she looked out there. And eventually when we took the break, the casting director came to me. She didn't even ask what was wrong or anything. She said, this happens to everybody. Take the day. (laughs) Allow the kind of awesomeness of it all to wash over you and then move on. She would have moved on and also, you know, gotten herself together. I had to channel a little bit of the intensity of Callus to make the character work. But I, I, I won't lie, it wasn't a comfortable <laughs> first day on stage. And no matter what I touched, honestly, even the walls, I was like, oh, she touched that wall. Or, oh my God, she, she, was, she washed her hands in this hand basin. Or, you know, I mean, it was an incredible sort of out of body experience that I wasn't expecting to have such an effect on me, but it did, it floored me. And I thought of her every single show. We had 13 shows and I couldn't kind of get past the fact that in some weird, strange way we were kind of meeting. It's as close to meeting as we'll ever get. And that I sort of hoped that she was (laughs) proud of what we were doing or that she could send some sort of sign if this wasn't good enough. Come back and show us, you know, because we're trying to move on on the legacy that she set in an industry that is bruised but not broken. And yeah, that was that was a really strange but special experience. Thank you. 